found on this month's podcast, John and Kate look at some rather ill-advised words from Ruth Davies, more events moving into the virtual space, and the proposed shake-up of skills and education by Boris Johnson. And then John and Joe talk about a few articles that have been published on Training Journal this month, and John accidentally denigrates the legacy of legendary Olympian Michael Phelps. Then John talks to Dr Linda Shaw about the psychology of mask wearing, trust and kindness. Hello everybody and welcome to the TJ Podcast for October 2020. I'm John Kennard, editor of Training Journal, the biggest and best independent community for learning and development professionals in the UK and further afield. As always, you know where we start, so here's a little sound effect. Here we are, it's the uh, October news section. Uh, As always, I say as always, always. Um, It's Kate Graham from Fosterway Group. How are you? I'm really well, thanks. How are you? I'm okay. Um, we, we, you know, we're like uh, we've been for a, for a lot of this year. We're in a state of flux with new regulations and changes coming our way, which can probably affect how people uh, are working. But um, what's going on with Fosway Group at the moment? Everything okay? What is not going on at Fosway Group? Um, we launched the uh, nine grid for Cloud HR 2029 grid for Cloud HR last month. Obviously, HR has been kind of in the eye of the storm through all of the the COVID-19 situation and continues to be. Um, So that has been really interesting, seeing the response to that and looking at the areas of innovation, um, you know, things like payroll, which has always been almost like a steady state or the unloved sibling, as one of our analysts would say, um, you know, has suddenly kind of had to innovate and evolve in a very short space of time. So there's actually quite a lot happening on the HR side. And for the first time, we've separated the launch of our what's traditionally been called the Nine Grid for Talent Management. That's due out um, at the beginning of November and big changes excuse me, big changes there as well. So the kind of the need to be able to mobilise talent through an organisation to respond quickly to new projects as the crisis has unfolded has kind of really put people's skills and the whole kind of area of talent management into the spotlight as well. Um, And being able to yeah, just just get people moving quickly. This kind of concept of internal talent marketplaces. There is a lot going on. Um, so obviously, it's our job to report on that and 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 put that kind of summary out there, as well as looking at obviously the vendors and who might be able to help organisations um, achieve all of this stuff. So yeah, there is a lot going on, and already looking ahead around some interesting stuff around skills. Um, and the learning side into 2021 as well. Sounds like you've got a lot on. Uh, do you reckon um, this is this is my segue into events? I hope you like it. Do, <laughs> do you reckon you'll be able to uh, kind of disseminate this information at events anytime soon? Do you reckon we'll we'll be seeing these up on the slides in front of people or in front of people? I don't. I don't. I don't see it happening. I mean, I think we have to see where we are at the start of 2021. But certainly for the remainder of this year, everything's going to be virtual i mean it's interesting seeing um how some of these things are being manifested um online um so david wilson did a a keynote yesterday for the personnel which has been acquired by closer still so owners of learning technologies um and that was that looked great so they had um a lady in a physical room and then david was kind of beamed onto the screen behind her so as an attendee it looks 
you know, it looks almost, uh, you know, like a proper television studio, really. Um, but obviously, from David's side, he just feels like he's presenting normally in a in a webinar. Um, and they actually used Vimeo to host all of that. So it's interesting seeing some of that because some of the other virtual events I've seen, and I, I, I used this analogy to somebody the other day and it shows my age, but, you know, some of these virtual event platforms are almost trying to recreate the physical event. And I use the analogy of, do you remember when Second Life kind of created like lecture Second Life, and wow. stuff like that? You know, back, right, back, yeah, back in the day. I mean, you know, like I said, I'm showing my age, but it it kind of feels a bit like that. And it's like, actually, you're in a virtual environment. Just embrace it. Just embrace the possibilities there. Don't just try and recreate what happens in a in a physical sense because it's really, really difficult to do that well. Um, so, yeah, so it, I think all of that sort of stuff will continue to evolve because I, I'm not convinced we'll be back at, at scale um, at any big events anytime soon. We'll come back to the idea of not replicating uh, the physical experience later in one of the news stories we're going to talk about. But coming, uh, we, we may as well talk about a couple of events and some news which broke, I guess, yesterday. Um, OEB, uh, closer still, have, have bought into and, and uh, have been running for a couple of years, announced to, I wouldn't say a great deal of surprise. Uh, I was, uh, I, I, I personally wasn't uh, in the frame for travelling to Berlin this year, but um, I love the event and uh, I think it's a cracker. And they, uh, they said they were going virtual this year. Um, yeah. So, what do you think? I, I think that was, I think with the timing of it, um, you know, it's beginning of December, it was always on the cards. I'm sure they've held off as long as they, they could to make that decision. It is a it is a great event. And one of the things I really like about it is because of the way it's held in a kind of big hotel, there's a lot of, there is an awful lot of opportunity to network and chat to people in quite a relaxed atmosphere, more so possibly than at some of the big kind of conference centres. Um you know, uh, and it, you know that just can't happen at the moment. So, but I, I think they'll do a great job. Obviously, Zakumpt, which I was talking about yesterday, is owned by the same stable, and I think that they're really evolving what they're doing on that front. So, I'll be excited mm. to see how they they recreate that. Yeah, um, I think OEB is an immaculately run event. Uh, like you say, it's in a brilliant venue. Uh, I've got every faith that they'll um, put on something that provides a, a really, really you know, a great continuation of what OEB do, regardless of whether it's virtual or face-to-face. Oddly enough, I mean, it feels to me like of, of all the events that have, have become virtual in the last few months, the bit that's, that I think has, people have got down in it and, and, is, and works really well is the content and the actual uh, conference programme and everything like that. I've seen some brilliant um, events over the last few months. The, the bit that I think people need to work on and I think that, that um, we are losing is, like you say, um, is the networking and possibly all the commercial, also the commercial side of things, because so much of that is kind of based on relationships and, you know, discussion and stuff like that. So I'm not saying it can't be done. I'm just saying it's more of a challenge, probably. 100%. I mean, um, I was talking to Nigel Payne the other day and he was saying he he's um, had a look at a platform that lets you sort of move around different tables and speak to different people virtually he said it's really clever and I said you know that that's really exciting because that is the bit that that 
you're missing out on, I think. Um, and it's why on some things, you know, some events like the Linear Skills Group is notorious for having a great chat, for example, during their webinars. Um, and because people are effectively networking and discussing alongside the content. But yeah, I'd agree with you the 100%. The content is not the issue. Um, I mean, we hosted something the other day, which we called RC Analyst, um, and we had you know, a tiny bit of contact setting by the guys at, at the top of the, the hour. And then it was just open to, to questions and discussion, um, because obviously the nine grid is something people often have questions about. How did we get to the conclusions and who's missing and all of that kind of stuff? And it was it was nice just to try something, try something different and, and harness that platform. Um, and actually, we might not have done that if it wasn't for for the current lockdown situation, so or pending lockdown situation. So in some ways, it does represent a nice opportunity. But I think it's always going to be really hard to replicate that kind of drink in the bar at the end of the day after an event. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so let's move on to our first story, actually, which is along similar lines or kind of... Uh, is about one of the the changes that's been made um, with how we're kind of working and learning in the last few months. And I was flagged up this story by the one and only Donald Clark, who has had several mentions on this podcast uh, for good reason. You know, he, he's he's very much an advocate of online learning, as as um, the majority of us are. But he sort of um, how can I put this? Wasn't too complimentary uh, about this <laughs> story from uh, TES. The headline. They've chosen, you know, the 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 the, the most uh, hooky part of of what um, Ruth Davies has been has said. But the headline is online learning quote little more than revision say heads. So you dig into the story and uh, it says Ruth Davies, the head teachers union president, uh, tells a COVID hearing it's not possible to learn. Not possible is the language she used to learn new concepts through online learning. Initial thoughts, Kate. <laughs> Where do I start? I mean, the fact that she's in that position and she can say something as sweeping as that is astonishing, actually, and just shows the limitations. You know, uh, education is still very wedded to this Victorian kind of notion of what learning looks like. Um, and, you know, I mean, I've talked about it on this podcast before, but, you know, we have this, at Fosway, we have this this plasma model that we talk about. Um, and, you know, David and David Wilson and David Perry are, are massive advocates of, you know, learning is, is, is not just about content. And it is not just about trying to absorb content. You know, it's about practicing. It's about reflection. It's about coaching. All of those things can be achieved online you know all of that stuff and I just think you know I mean and my son has got some homework to do and some exercises even though school is is open at the moment so we've got various things to do and we were doing some maths games the other day and he really enjoys them um and then he wanted to send we've got talking about telling the time and he wanted to send his teacher a picture of this clock that we've got in the house that's got roman numerals on it so we took a picture we've got an app that we used to talk to school. And then in Welsh, he sat down, dictated this message to his teacher. He had to think about the grammar, think about the spelling, sent that picture through. You know, to say that that isn't a learning, teachable moment, is just utter nonsense. It's just so blinkered. 
you know, it really it, mm. it's it would be funny if it wasn't so terrible. Um, but it's quite distressing given what we're up against and the fact that online learning is going to be a big part of our lives for the next however long. Um, you know, they've got to change their attitudes because this, this sort of idea that we're going to get back to normal might not happen anytime soon. So we've got to find a way to embrace and make the most of what we've got. Yeah, um, exactly. I mean, to go, where can I start with this? Um, <laughs> so we've, I mean, the, the, the main thrust of TJ is obviously workplace learning. Uh, I've consciously tried to expand what we're talking about what we've been talking about a little bit and things we're focusing on to include things like apprentice to include things like apprenticeships um and you know we have a, we, we we publish a a skills guide every year um or we didn't this year but this year's just a bit weird isn't it um we cross over with other elements uh, other titles in the dodds portfolio on various subjects the intention being that workplace learning doesn't exist just in, in a vacuum and Lifelong learning, the idea of sort of from, from birth to death almost, that uh, you can always, you, you don't have to be in work to be learning, you don't have to be in school to be learning, it's a continuation. So I, even though this story isn't exactly related to our audience and isn't exactly related to what we do, I think it's incredibly important because it's a mindset of a large, large group of people. And this person has a platform. 100%. She's got a platform that, that is powerful. Uh, talking to other head teachers yeah. to say this and I think it's 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 pretty blinkered like you say and I mean some of the quotes down beneath so the commitment was there but just speaking as a teacher online learning in that way amounts usually to little more than revision it is not I mean in that way is the kind of modifier in that previous sentence so she could be you know talking about uh, certain online learning platforms and and at the top of this piece I kind of do agree she's saying that you can't do the same things necessarily or you shouldn't no she says you shouldn't do the same things fair enough you shouldn't do the same things but why not use the strengths of some of a different platform you know. Also, there's absolutely no, you know, we, we again, we talk about, uh, at Fosway, we talk about this notion of acquire, practice, do, you know, as a way of um, honing skills and gaining mastery. You know, there's absolutely no reason why a teacher can't set pupils. And again, to relate this to, to, to workplace learning, a trainer or a subject matter expert can't set somebody an exercise to go away and do something, go away and try it. You, you, you know uh, that's how that's how you learn you know I'm just onboarding somebody new at the moment into my team and I you know I haven't got time to to hold his hand all the way through what so what do you think he's doing he's going away and he's just trying stuff you know we've been through some of the basics and he's just trying and that is how he will learn about some of our systems and some of the way that we we do things um so it's just yes you can't quite get the collaboration piece with kids maybe I think that that might be difficult um you know obviously you get them building blocks and towers and things together in school but kids are amazingly adaptable as well you know your kids are just a little bit older than mine and the way that they've adapted in lockdown has been amazing so to say that you couldn't get them doing that is just a really negative attitude mm -hmm. but I, I I do think that you're right that the kind of this mindset is something that a lot of people in the corporate world have as well um and it's not helpful in, in this 
in this climate. It, it just isn't. You know, we're doing some deep dive research mm. into virtual classrooms at the moment and I had a comment on LinkedIn somebody said you know I know we love to get hung up on buzzwords in L&D but I think the name classrooms is part of the problem because they people think it's just about delivery of content and training and actually these environments he's he was saying might be more of a better phrase for them because there's lots of things that you can do that don't involve the delivery of Mm. content yeah yeah i i uh, i completely agree and uh i i do have to before we move on to the next story i do have to pull out one more quote because it's it's quite unbelievable that it's actually down here but it's in quote marks so it must have been said um and she says it is not possible to teach new concepts and skills entirely in an online setting there is nothing that comes close to face-to-face learning uh so, yeah, this is what we're up against. Yeah, and it's terrifying. It, I mean, I, I genuinely find it really uh, really upsetting. Um, and, yeah, I, I think we are all missing that human contact. But, it, you know, I was talking to um, Danny Seals um, a while ago, really, at the, towards the start of lockdown, and he was saying, you watch now, after lockdown, there'll be a massive swing back to the classroom. And I said, well, if, you know, I hope that the classroom is used in a different way because actually so much of like the pre-reading and the kind of you know that that again that content delivery can be done via online if you want and then when we are able to come together it is about the collaboration piece it is about you know sharing and reflecting and all of that but there's there's none of that that you can't do online if you design it properly and set it up properly Mm. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, oh, I feel I feel quite cross now. I'm all like, oh. Oh, sorry. That wasn't my intention. Um, uh, yeah, that wasn't my intention. But uh, okay, well, well, this isn't going to change your mind, Kate. I'm afraid. Um, or maybe it will. Uh, this was a piece from the 29th of September. I'm taking it from BBC News. Uh, PM promises radical shake-up of adult education. Have you seen this story? Yes. Yes, I have. Yeah, Uh, the Prime Minister uh, has said the pandemic has massively accelerated changes to the world of work. Well, I'm glad he's awake and um, and (laughs) realised that. And uh, made training gaps painfully apparent. He said funding changes could help end the bogus distinction between academic and vocational learning. Uh, I'm sure that's what they say in the Bull Ending Club. Uh, But Labour said the plans would not make up for a decade of cuts. Uh, Speaking at a further education college in Exeter, Mr Johnson said the government cannot save every job. We've heard that one before uh, amid the COVID-19 panic. But he added that better training would give people the skills to find and create new and better jobs. Uh, I can't disagree with that, but... um, Essentially, one of the major things he's going to do is reduce the age uh, of um, the lifetime skills guarantee from 23 to 18. So anyone under the age of 18 without A-levels or equivalent qualifications will be offered uh, a college, a fully funded college course, which is you know, clearly a good thing. Um, mm. the, the commitment will be paid for under an already announced £2.5 billion boost to the National Skills Fund. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's... I'd, I'd like to see how it is put into action. I mean, it is a good idea, um, but it's all about actually doing this. And uh, there are lots of promises that have been made, is all I'll say. Uh, and I also think the skills piece in this is is really critical. You know, do how much are these colleges 
uh, um, and education institutions keeping up with what organisations need, you know, in terms of skills. A lot of organisations can't keep up with what organisations need in terms of skills. Um, and that is changing at an ever, more, you know, increasingly fast rate. Um, and, you know, that's what kind of concerns me is the whole thing just feels really slow. The funding piece is critical. Um, I absolutely 100 percent wholeheartedly agree with the kind of the need for vocational skills as well as academic. I think vocational kind of qualifications have always been seen as the the kind of the poor relation. Um, but, you know, the speed with which qualifications are created and we're able to, you know, get get you you know young kids however old they are up to speed with what organizations really want and need i just you know that has all got to accelerate i mean he had to use the word accelerate but i i don't think that that process is at all quick so you know it's good in theory but how many of these sort of stories have we looked at over the years it just you know it seems to skill seems to be a word that they bandy around but they don't really understand yeah, um, and I think uh, as has been trailed and mentioned a couple of months in the last couple of months of podcasts, I think we're on the verge of, um, well, everyone knows we're on the verge of a, a possible, well, influx of people looking for work, let's put it like that. Uh, so not the not the cheeriest news section this month. Um, <laughs> so we'll see what happens in November. Uh, Re reflective of the current uh, current environment, I suppose. Yeah. But if you, have, uh, if you have good news stories, send them in. Yeah, if you can point us uh, in the direction of uh, any good news, then uh, please do. Squirrels learning how to water ski or something like that. Yeah, some kind of and finally story like that would be great. Uh, okay, <laughs> as always, Kate, thank you very much. My absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hi, TJs. Uh, I recently talked to Dr Linda Shaw. Uh, she holds a doctorate in cognitive neuroscience, specialising in unconscious processing of emotion and behavioural change. She works with senior leaders and their teams who want to un better understand the science of change and development and harness this power through heightened awareness of how their brain works. Uh, we talked about wearing masks, the psychology of wearing masks, and we talked about trust as well. Uh, there's a lot to say around this subject, particularly when the goalposts are shifting so quickly and so dramatically. So do tune in and listen to what she has to say about trust a little bit about well-being, and also towards the end, something about kindness. We're talking about various aspects of psychology, the new things that we're dealing with in this world of work and uh, also life, I guess. The first question being, tell us a bit about your thoughts on the psychology of wearing masks and why some people react against it. Okay, okay. Um, there is... I think there's a few things to consider, to be honest with you. Um, first of all, when we communicate with people and we talk to them face to face, we really do look for facial, facial cues with the eyes and the mouth to, to glean more understanding. And of course, if the mouth is covered up, we are going to be um, struggling to interpret people properly. We might um, have a, an issue, for instance, with the expression of anger or is that of disgust? And we we are start we will start to feel a little bit insecure that we're getting the right cues, especially if they're wearing sunglasses, because then you haven't got any any information coming from the eyes or the mouth. So that can actually make us feel um, a little bit threatened, and also we get 
we feel a bit self-conscious because it's it's like somebody being partially deaf. If we if people often who are who are partially deaf, they misinterpret what somebody says. And that leads to really um, a feeling of embarrassment and being self-conscious. So if we start, these, these mixed messages and misinterpretations are an issue, I think, for people wearing masks. Um, and, and, you, and you know what we're like in England. To embarrass an English person is the, probably the worst thing you can do to them. So um, uh, culturally, there are issues. And equally culturally, of course, we are not used to wearing masks, whereas some cultures are. So so that, that's that's another thing. We've got to almost wait to catch up and, and for it to become more of a social norm. And I think that the uh, mixed messages we've been getting over the last six or seven months from the government has not helped. And we're feeling um, a, a threat to our, our freedom, if you like, because we're having to conform to rules that change all the time so there's a, a, a lot of confusion going on so yeah there, there's a few pro there's a few problems go with with the masks but nevertheless that doesn't mean to say we shouldn't wear them we should wear them because if it's going to help us not spread the virus then it's worth doing yeah i completely agree you mentioned uh, at the end of that answer something that's going to lead into this question actually it's a little bit of a leading question for me but let's see where it takes us this perhaps leads to some bigger questions about uh, our our ability to change or our opinions of change and how we react against this. And like you said about mixed messages, it also, I think, uh, is about our questioning and trust of authority, which I think is particularly important uh, at the moment, as you said, that we've, we've had some confusing messages from our, our government in recent months. What do you uh, think about all that? Actually, I believe that trust is the most important thing um, for us to concentrate right right now. <clears throat> if you want people to support decisions, you, you have to come from a place of trust. And if you're on, in, on a place of person in authority, you've got to earn that trust by showing um, a, a really high level of expertise and listening to experts, a really high level of, of making good judgments and a strong track record. And so far, we haven't seen much evidence of any of that. So um, I think there's a, a huge element of us not trusting people in authority. So how do we claw it back? Um, I think we need um, decisiveness, which we seem to be getting now, um, but consistent messaging, which is still not solid. And the, the messages are still a little bit opaque. They're not clear, so we, we are not, people are still coming from a place of distrust. Um, and so for, for us to actually um, start to trust people in authority outside of being, you know, the consistency and having a strong track, track record and so on, we all, I think, I think, we're not hearing very much from, from the author, people in authority about how well we're doing. Um, nobody actually, you know, we talked about our NHS staff and and how magnificent they have been and continue to be, of course. But there are all the emergency services that are doing a splendid job, and also there's the, the, the us lesser folk who are are not in the emergency services, who are all trying to do our best. Um, even those who don't seem to be conforming to the, to the um, the new guidelines, everyone is trying to do their best in in their own way. And I, if if we can maybe the people of authority start to acknowledge that, and then give people some power, 
not strip them of their power, give them some power by giving them really strong, consistent, clear data, the whole story as, as we know it so far, and I know that's going to keep changing as, we, as this virus evolves and we evolve in how we handle it. But if we can, if we can just empower people with the knowledge and then get them on board because they know the whole story. Do you know, part of me thinks that we need to trust people more so that they become trustworthy. And, and it, therefore you need to empower people. So it's all about giving them the data, giving them um, uh, the knowledge and the overall view of everything as far as we can and, and trust people. I think there's, that's missing hugely. Yeah, I agree. I think trust is... Uh often harder to come by um, even before uh, what we're living through right now. But um, the third, my third question, I'm possibly asking a lot of you, so I'd, I'm not uh, I'm not looking for a definitive answer here because it's a very, very big question. And again, it sort of speaks to uh, some of the fundamental ways in which we engage with information in 2020 and um, beyond, really. But how would you suggest that we change people's minds for example about safety issues when it's easier than ever at this point September 2020 to selectively find evidence to support your viewpoint in terms of confirmation bias yeah absolutely and people will always um, um, air towards unconscious bias and look for evidence to support their beliefs and ignoring evidence that does not support their beliefs so and to change people's minds as far as that's concerned is the way to do it is to get people to want to. Uh, you can't force people to change their minds because it's all part of being, it's all part of group membership. They, you know, people have, we seem to be split into two camps, maybe more. And you, people who are in the camp where they are not wanting to wear masks, for instance, not, not adhering to the guidelines, the government guidelines and so forth, they don't, they won't want to upset their peer group. They won't want to upset those people who are in agreement with them or they are in agreement with their peer group, which whatever way around, it doesn't really matter. But we're tribal and we don't we don't want to be um, abandoned by the, a social group that we have identified with. So um, how you can actually change people's minds into consider safety, really we need to draw them in to a new way of thinking that is um, makes us makes them feel as if they're belonging to a, a different a new tribe that they don't belong to at the moment a new group of people and a different way of thinking so they feel integrated they feel they belong it's really important that people feel they belong to whomever they identify with so if you want people to change their minds it's a, especially on the safety issues it's a, it's a good idea to integrate them with people who have already had their minds made up in a way that is advantageous to the pop, to the general population, i.e., the safety issues. So that that's the way to do it. And it's and it's done again by trust. You know, trust. We keep coming back to trust. Is that they they people if they can identify with. Um, a different way of thinking in terms of safety, then they will start to trust that process and again become more trustworthy. So it, it, it's 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 about people belonging to the group that considers safety issues sensibly. In terms of getting people to change their minds, uh, 
do you think this is the reason why role models are so important? So you, you want to move people's opinions or behaviours uh, from one place to another. Um, and people sometimes people do this, um, large institutions and organisations, through the use of popular figures or role models. Yeah, I think role models are really, really important. Um, for instance, I'll give you an idea of how the brain works in terms of that, uh, in, in terms of um, identity of groups. Um, if you if you are you constantly drive around in the middle of the afternoon and schools are coming out and you, you see the predominantly women picking children up, the brain will go, oh, it's women who pick children up from school rather than you consider there are a few men there as well. So you start to then categorise women as the, the the people who pick children up from school. Um, so if you therefore then see people who are um, really uh, cool, in, cool people who are wearing a certain um, uh, brand in their clothing, you will think, oh, that branding is all about people who are really cool. Um, so we, we associate all the time. So if you are looking at role models um, and those role models who, who, you, uh, who you identify with are wearing a mask, you're more likely to subconsciously file that away and going, oh, it's pretty cool to wear a mask then. I thought, you know, that they wouldn't do that. And so you, it, there is a lots of subliminal messages that we are exposed to constantly that make us consider um, biases or unconscious biases or conscious biases, um, but they feed that. Um, and we really do need to have famous people, sports people wearing a mask and, and being an example of taking care of safety issues. Yeah, absolutely. Um, to, to finish on a more positive note, hopefully, my final question is about looking to uh, a more positive 2021, I think. Um, what behaviours do you see successful companies and businesses adapting when it comes to uh, flexible working and kind of the new way that we're sort of in, uh, kind of interacting with work? Well, I, I'm I'm be, I'm working with a lot of companies now who are taking this very very seriously and quite rightly so, because if you have a company that is not considering their workforce at this moment. And they, and they think they, they can, they're fine because there aren't enough jobs going around, there's mass redundancies and all sorts of things happening. So people should be grateful for a job. Yes, certainly there will be people who are, will be grateful that they're working, but woe betide that company in a, six months, a year's time or whenever when things are better and those people will leave. They will lose their best workforce because they weren't they weren't treated with consideration. So, at the moment, what the successful businesses are looking at and will be adopting and are adopting now, when it comes to flexible working, is really being considerate about what people want. Now, there's an issue with that because um, if people there is a, a section of society that very much want to work from home and there's a success a, a, a section of society that don't so what that's fine if you have got a really good bosses and they and they want to accommodate all their staff um, fantastic but what worries me is that we're setting up a them and us those that work from home those that work in the office 
So what you could have is um, those that work in the office are really maybe getting feeling a little bit bitter because those who work from home don't have to commute, don't have to go on public transport, where you know where you're you're more exposed to the virus. Or you've got it the other way around, where people are working from home are thinking those in the office are thinking, well, they're probably going to get a promotion before me because out of sight, out of mind. So they're just two things that can polarise the workforce and you have this this diverse, this division going on where it's of them and us. So we've got to be really careful. So if you are, for instance, um, accommodating your staff to do that, um, then perhaps once a week, you all, all the staff come together for a virtual meeting, so that everybody's um, on the same platform and 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 having the same advantages and disadvantages at least once a week. That might be a good idea. I think also um, it's the responsibility of a good employer to um, remove any uncertainty you pos- uncertainty you possibly can, because uncertainty the brain doesn't do uncertainty. It doesn't do gaps. So what it does is it makes things up to fill in those gaps. So you, for a company to be successful, you need to communicate, communicate, and communicate. Be absolutely crystal clear to remove any uncertainty so that the staff don't all go along um, making up stories and you know um, whispering behind people's backs and things like that. And, and you need people to know that they're in a safe environment if they're coming back to the office. So again, communicate what is going on in terms of safety it's really important and trust comes in again um we've really got to um give our our staff all the resources they need to do their job wherever they're going to be working from and trust that they will do it um and then as i say the the more people are trusted the more they become trustworthy so you get far more commitment from people and far more job satisfaction uh, Linda, thanks a lot uh, for talking to TJ today. Uh, we've covered a lot of aspects of the, you know, the many things that we're dealing with at the moment, and um, hopefully more people will uh, take this advice on board. And uh, good luck with your recent book as well. Yeah, I, I think it boils down to us actually being kinder to one another and being more um, considerate and thinking about what it's like for that person at that moment. We never know what it's really like to be anyone else. We can't possibly. But we can try to have empathy and work with that to be decent human beings. Yeah, we t- that's a really good point, I think. We, we talk a lot. I cover kind of well-being a lot and resilience and all these things. But simple kindness, I think, is, uh, is, is something we don't hear that much about. And, um, yeah, I think it goes a long way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, when we are kinder to others and think of others... Um, we put our brain in the most efficient state it is because all the neuro, all the feel-good neurochemicals will will be activated at a better level. The stress hormones and the stress systems will be diminishing because we are thinking outside of ourselves and not focusing inwards. So it's a win-win. It's actually a win-win when we are when we are decent human beings. It um, it works. Yeah. You know, the world has to go around better. Yeah, I, um, I'm doing a course at the moment um, through Yale online about the science of well-being, and they they spent the first few lectures saying all this stuff that you think makes you happy, uh, you know, a good job, money, possessions, blah blah blah, does make you happy, but not as much as you think, and not for as long as you think. 
The things that really make you happy are fairly obvious things like getting enough sleep, getting enough exercise, but also giving to other people and doing things for other people. Um, and they spend a lot of time talking about why, uh, you know, chemically that's really, really important. So it's good to hear someone else back it up as well. Oh, totally. Altruism, kindness and generosity really does put us in an optimum state of our mental and physical well-being. Great stuff. Um, okay, well, Linda, thanks a lot for your time and uh, speak to you very, very soon. Here we are. It's the section uh, that allows me to welcome Lightbulb Moments Joe Cook to the October 2020 podcast. Joe, how are you? I am very well, thank you. Although in the Northern Hemisphere, I'm not liking, liking the dark nights or the cold. But then the opposite side of that is you close the curtains, you have the lights on, it can be nice and cosy. So, you know, my psychotic yeah. two-sided thing is coming through now. I know, I know what you mean. I kind of, I like the... Uh, I like the cosy element too, but it uh, is a bit nippy in the mornings. It doesn't make yeah. me makes me want to get out of bed even less than normal. Um, <laughs> I was actually going to uh, reschedule this podcast for later in the week because I was eating a Sunday roast yesterday, um, and uh, I managed to bite my tongue quite badly. Um, oh. Not one for the squeamish this, but uh, there's quite a lot of blood and um, made my tongue swell up. So if I sound slightly different, can't pronounce my s's quite uh, <laughs> quite like normal. That's why it's because I'm carrying a carrying a food injury. Oh, you poor thing. And uh, Was it at the beginning, middle or end of your roast? And did it ruin the dinner? It did ruin the dinner, but luckily I was about three quarters of the way through. So it was okay. Ah, it's all right then. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, I'm going to soldier on, but thank you for your sentiment. Uh, so we're here to talk about some of the content we've published this month on Training Journal. Um, we have picked out three wonderful articles, a couple of opinion pieces and a blog post. Um, let's start with... Pam Hamilton's piece. Uh, she's a new writer that I I met through an, a webinar we did, in fact, and she's written a piece which is um, just a sort of slightly controversial but very forthright opinions that we like here at TJ, which is uh, ban the committee and the workshop. The main thrust of it is about how language influences culture. The quote that I think really sets out the stall is, I don't believe that any person would ever willingly start or join a committee. Joe, what do you think about that for a comment? I loved the title, Ban the Committee. And then when it got to And the Workshop, I was like, oh, oh, I don't know about this. Um, and and you're right, Pam makes some really great points about the wording and the terminology that we use. And I'm in two minds over this piece. As I'm reading it, I'm thinking, really, does somebody want to go to a roadmap meeting or an inspiration session? Is that not just, what do they call it, business bingo business speak bingo something like that corporate rubbish mm -hmm. you know are people not just going to roll their eyes however she makes a great point uh she makes a great point about would you rather join an air pollution committee or a clean air a clean air action group so actually you know she's absolutely right about how that terminology makes a difference yeah um i completely agree you sort of uh, the first part of the article, you're like, well, I'm not sure about this. These are just these are just words. Does it matter? But she makes mm. a very good case as to why it matters, you know, exactly yeah. as you just said. And, and we um, are, after all, John, with TJ in the business of words. So it would be, it behooves us to say it's important. <laughs> of course, yeah. Um, one of her points is about, well, the first point is about renaming your team. And it and it seems like something that's sort of superficially shouldn't make much difference, but, but it can do because... 
our language is who we are is the other point that she makes you know mm-hmm. how we speak is who we are when you uh in in the second point here when she says when you hear someone say if we achieve our objectives rather than when we achieve our objectives you know yeah. that they think they may not achieve them and so that's the main part of the piece she does talk about uh beware buzzwords and i think i've written buzzword bingo that's the term i was looking for sorry i've just remembered it no, no. buzzword bingo not business bingo <laughs> well business jargon bingo buzzword bingo but yeah i know what you're saying what i do think and I, I i wrote a book about this actually under a pseudonym when i was in a previous job because uh, i was um it, it just made me very angry. What I do think is that people <laughs> people are on people are on a different different points in a curve in terms of what language is acceptable and what isn't. So mm-hmm. some people might balk at certain terms that other people might use very freely. So well, I guess we have to acknowledge that English is a, an alive yeah. language that changes over time, and and uh, some things that say five years ago you might have considered to be jargon uh, now people use. Um, a great deal. I don't know. Yeah, I was watching Grand Designs, the the show about you know people building their own amazing houses, and it was a retrospective look back at the last twenty years or whatever of, of Grand Designs, and they were going back to the nineties and saying you know this is Bob and he works in e commerce. Gosh, who who says e-commerce now? You know, that was very 90s and early 2000s. So you're right about how that language changes. And, you know, obviously with, with Black Lives Matter and with um, all the stuff going on about the election in the US and, and so many other parts of our lives, it really highlights how important that is. So I think if we then really focus on this in in work and business and then learning and development, it's a really interesting thought-provoking article from Pam. Yeah, definitely. And I'm looking forward to her next one. So that was Pam Hamilton's piece. She's uh, the MD of Paraffin and author of Supercharged Teams, 30 Tools of Great Teamwork, uh, and also the workshop book. So um, yeah, do check it out. We'll provide the link uh, on our SoundCloud page. Next piece is the power of face-to-face. Now, this, I would say, is maybe even more controversial than Pam's piece. Uh, This is a a piece from Ben Chambers, published recently. Uh, Ben's the head of business school and talent function at Grant Thornton. And he's making the case for the return of face-to-face learning. So this is something that maybe... Well, Joe, as as someone who works in in virtual classrooms, uh, is somewhat of an expert, I would say, on this subject... Uh, where did you how did this article sit for you? I think it's really important as a discussion piece because I've always 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 said there is a place for face-to-face training. It's important. Uh, there are some things that are more difficult virtually. There are some things that, quite frankly, you shouldn't do virtually. And, and Ben makes a great point in here about where you learn skills, uh, if you get better learning transfer, if you learn the way you're going to use them, for instance. And obviously... Is that true? Uh, Dr. Itiel Draw's done some research around it and other people have as well. Uh, so as far as my research and understanding goes, yes. I've, I wait until somebody corrects us or until I go and do some further research on it. But as far as I'm aware, that's the case, yeah. Okay. There's another really interesting point from Ben here that I completely agree with. And he says here that if COVID has shown us that if we have existing relationships, uh, we have a head start on collaborating kind of virtually. And I completely agree that. And I think, though, there's an interesting point here that he kind of seems not to hold that you can have that what he calls social capital develop purely 
remotely or virtually. And that's not my experience. I've worked on a lot of virtual and remote teams with people around the world and I find them absolutely fine. So it's it's about perhaps experience and what you know can work. Yeah, I can see all the sides of this. And I published it because I, I thought it was an interesting rejoinder to a lot of the, I would say, pretty correct, accepted thinking that everything is going to be much more virtual and there's going to be a, a kind of a, a shift and a, a split towards the virtual and away from the face-to-face some most of it for reasons of necessity but nevertheless it was an interesting article to provide balance the quote that I thought was well there's a couple here the first one that I, I thought I'd pull out to see what you thought was he says programs that explore leadership personality and core values should be conducted face-to-face I'm I'm not sure about that one I think there are points that Ben is making around connection and seeing the whole person and spending time with people that are utterly valid about how valuable that is face to face. And I agree with that. However, I think, again, it comes down to experience and design and delivery of how you can make that work virtually. And there was some research, I I would have to go and find it, I wrote it somewhere and maybe in one of my courses, where some senior leadership team were in some remote leadership training and the feedback was basically, wow, I didn't know it could be this great. Um, And so I think there's, there's a lot of the time where people are now doing this, but they're not doing it all that well and that's impacting people's opinions and and that's that's the case with everything is that if you do it without much experience without much training without much support it's not going to be as great as it could be and therefore it will color people's opinions of what they think it should be moving forwards and I think that is the case for a lot of people so therefore maybe it's about yes we do need this face-to-face stuff it is really valuable and important but what's wrong with mixing it up and doing the blend and whatever language you want to use and using the best of all situations yeah I think so I mean this uh, this sounds like something that you're pretty passionate about Jay. well <laughs> it's what makes you passionate it's something that really interests me You published a blog post not so long ago about this, about passion and uh, what makes you passionate about learning and development and, and, well, this whole industry, really. Yeah, actually, it was was quite a while ago. It was, uh, I think, last summer. Um, So, you know, maybe it's it's due for a, a, a revisit but I just I just found it interesting because I, as I get older I'm starting to realize more and more what I'm passionate about what my purpose is or you know vision values all those kind of things and I just put a shout out on social media to ask what do other people think it's only 30 responses it's you know it's, it's nothing uh, like towards maturity or Fosway or anything like that or sorry Emerald Works I should say now Um, But I just thought it was interesting what people were saying and I coded it up and I just wrote a blog post about it. Well, uh, yeah, if we we get an update on that soon, I think that's, I mean, it's a great idea considering how the industry's changed so much in the last 12 months for obvious reasons, you know, that we uh, talk about a lot. Obviously, everyone talks about it a lot, but um, it it would be very interesting to see how people's, um, what's changed about L&D that people are passionate about or whether you've started focusing on a different part of your job, but 
um, which makes you still passionate about the industry in that way. Yeah, because when, when I ask people, uh, and you know, it was only me that coded this up, it wasn't anything specific, but from people's responses, I put them into categories. And half of what people said that made them passionate about L&D was to help people, which, you know, makes utter sense. Um, and some of them were about what I call, obviously, on brand, the light bulb moment, but the penny drop or, or getting somebody helping somebody to get something and loads of other stuff as well and and you're right I've been chatting with a few people and about what has changed this year are we more passionate about L&D like I am because I've helped more people this year or am I less passionate because maybe I've been made redundant or I'm doing three people's jobs so that might be an interesting area to have a look at Hmm. yeah definitely um so while we wait for an update on that possibly Let's talk about the last piece of the month, which is a blog from mm. Andrew Gibbons, 38-year veteran of L&D, a regular long-time blogger for TJ. Uh, and it's called How to Make the Most yes. of the Three Forms of Reflection. So the three forms of reflection, unsurprisingly, are kind of looking forward, reflecting in the moment and uh, looking backward. So this sort of ties nicely actually with a, a podcast I just listened another podcast I just listened to which is called the happiness lab it's hosted by Dr Laurie Santos who is a psychology professor at Yale um, she's also the course leader of uh, this MOOC which I'm sort of wrapping up at the moment uh, on the science of well-being so it's a 12-week long course and the podcast kind of is an ongoing thing that is sort of, I mean, it's it's kind of like just extra uh, listening material, learning material for the for the course, but the podcast's ongoing. But um, the last episode I listened to, she told a really good story about she she talked to one of Michael Phelps's trainers. Um, so he obviously the American swimmer. He's he's won twenty three golds at the Olympics. I mean. <laughs> I don't want to do his um, his achievements down here, but it's obviously a bit easier to win golds in swimming than it is in other sports. You know, there's 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 medals. <laughs> there's me- sorry, sorry, Michael. Um, it's all it's all for nothing. <laughs> I, I'm sure he's devastated at this. <clears throat> I think he'll be okay. It's easy for you to say that sitting there on your on your bouncy ball in your office, John. I don't see you with 23 gold medals. I can't even do front crawl. But listen, um, so there's so 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 there's gold for every every um, discipline of every style of swimming, right? So there's gold for butterfly back, etc. Um, whereas in the decathlon, you only get one gold for ten for being amazing at ten things, you know. So it is easier, but 23 is ridiculous, you know. It's by by far and away the he's by far and away the most decorated Olympian in history, and so. In the 2008 Olympics, he won gold for the 200-meter butterfly. But something like a third of the way through, he realized that his goggles uh, had a crack in and they were filling up with water. So he did the whole of the rest of the race blindfold. And he still managed to break the world record and win the gold. But he was devastated. And you can see in his face on the uh, podium that he was just really pissed. He was, he was, he was really annoyed because he, he wanted to break uh, a faster time and he could have done if his goggles hadn't screwed up. But the reason why, oh. yeah, I know. Look, imagine, imagine feeling like that, but you know, that's what you get. That's the mindset you have to have to be the best. But, yeah. but the reason why he was able to do this is because he was reflecting forward or as he called it, um, using kind of mental visualization techniques or mental imaging where he, he kind of mapped out the different scenarios about what could happen, good and bad. And so that was, I, I guess, a kind of reflecting forward 
um, similar to what Andrew's talking about in this piece about uh, kind of appreciating what the future situation could look like and working out how you can get the most of it. That's a really interesting story. And I think it, it links nicely with what Andrew's saying, because so often, as he points out, that when people talk about reflection, it's about retrospection and reviewing past events. And that's absolutely past of it, part of it and really important. But what that can do is lead us to being negative, to being anxious, to that shoulda, woulda, coulda kind of place, rather than reflection and an absolutely kind of what went wrong, what caused that and so on, or or what went right and mm. what was my contribution to that. So that you can do that in the moment and that forward thinking. Um, I can't remember if I've said this on the podcast before, but I've seen this, it's like a meme on Facebook or something. And uh, I will butcher it, I'm sure, but it's something like uh, people love movies that go back in time and they make whole movies about how one small change will change the whole of history. But yet you try and get somebody to make one small change for their future and it's really hard. And that just Mm. made me kind of think about that a lot and about how those small incremental changes, which are part of that, um, reflecting in action and reflecting before action that um, Angie's talking about can make such a difference. And I keep trying to have that in mind about the small decisions I make towards the goals that I want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a really good quote. I like it. Talking about reflecting in the moment, I, I find it interesting. I completely agree, but I do find it interesting that he, he, he singles out that as the toughest form of reflection. Reflecting back is obviously the most he says is the most natural and familiar and that's the kind of the one that most people do but kind of reflecting in the mm-hmm. moment I, I I'm going to refer back to this course I'm doing again but they talk about savoring as a way as a as a way to well-being really understanding being present mm-hmm. and all those kinds of things is really really difficult to do but makes such a big difference well we were talking about that before we started recording the podcast weren't we about um I really boring but in my house I've got rid of like two-thirds of a collection of stuff um and put in a smaller cabinet in my living room but I appreciate it more because I can see the collection that I've got better it's well lit there's more space I've put house plants in and, and made the most of my collection um because I got rid of so much of it and therefore I'm much more in the moment when I'm there rather than it's just this cacophony of stuff and that's you know that, that's all kind of part of that and trying to have that in different parts of your life I think mm. yes indeed uh, good place to finish yeah so what's happening next month uh, John oh I don't know <laughs> um... <laughs> have you not thought that far ahead as usual <laughs> No, we have. I have. I'm kidding. Um, so, yeah. So I've got a piece from. Um, what have I got booked in so far? We've got a piece about online coaching. We've got. Uh, we're talking about HR analytics. Uh, a couple of book reviews. Uh, 360 training, sustainability. A piece from Ad House. Oh, lovely. About illustrating digital learning. His work with Simon Heath, uh, the illustrator, Excellent. which I think some of our listeners probably know from uh, events past and hopefully future mm-hmm. uh yeah so we've got lots to uh talk about in november excellent i look forward to it and we've got another couple of stories brewing uh on the side that weren't quite ready for this month haven't we so that should be quite interesting too we do we do more will be revealed next time <laughs> see you soon john
TJ Podcast is hosted by John Kennard, Joe Cook and Kate Graham. It's produced by me, John Kennard, and mixed and edited by Digital Skills People. Title music is by The Leisure All Stars featuring Yolanda. The sponsorship music is by Audio Nautics and is used under a Creative Commons license. TJ is a publishing title owned by Dodds Group PLC.